So in recent, you know, last year or two, three, uh, there's been a very popular spinoff of Star Wars. It's called The Mandalorian. I know a lot of us have seen it. The Mandalorian tells the story. There's, the lead character is called The Mandalorian, but he's actually part of this elite group of warriors uh, from, I think, the planet Mandalore, if I'm getting my details right. They all live by a very strict code that's very much understood between them. And at different times, they kind of relay that code to one another. One of them will say to the group, this is the way. And they all respond. They echo, this is the way. So if, if one of the Mandalorian makes a sacrifice for the sake of the others, they do it because this is the way. Uh, or in the case of the lead character, he never takes his helmet off to reveal his true identity. And the reason his helmet always remains on his head is because this is the way. And so we come to realize as we're watching the show, this is the way is not just a catchphrase. It's like a moral code. It's almost like a religion of sorts. Because what it really means when they say this is the way, they're saying this is who we are. This is how we live. This is what gives us our deep sense of identity as a people. This is the way. Now, everything in the, the show is, is fictional. But that right there actually taps into something that's deeply human. Everybody, everybody subscribes to a way, a way of life, a way of, of making decisions, a way of identifying ourselves. Everybody has one. Now, oftentimes it does come in the form of religion or maybe just shared culture or politics. We all have a, a code of morality that we live by as to what's right and wrong. And we expect other people to agree with our morality and abide by it. This is the way. This is the way we're supposed to live, right? And, y'all, there are a million books and, and blogs and podcasts that come out every single year declaring a new way, a new way of fitness or diet, a new way of investing, a new way of self-esteem. Everybody has a way by which we live. And, and I'm, I'm trying to, to say all this to establish for us today a very careful distinction. Because if you are a Christian, most of the world, if they find out you're a Christian, here's what they think. Okay, you're a Christian. That means you subscribe to the way of Jesus. You subscribe to his teachings and you try to live by his example. Jesus offers his way, just like every other religion and philosophy offers their own way. We follow the way of Jesus. Now, that's not entirely wrong. It does sound right, perhaps on the surface, but that actually misses the heart of the Christian faith. If that's all we take the Christian faith to mean is that we follow Jesus' teachings and his example, then we actually come up short of what the gospel says to us. Because y'all, Jesus did not show up on the earth all these many years ago merely to show us a new way to walk or a new path to follow. The message of Jesus is not, I've come to show you the way. Jesus actually says, I am the way. And that's not a matter of semantics. The difference is essential for us to understand. And really, when Jesus says, I am the way, that's the most consequential declaration in all the history of the world. And I'm not overblowing this. I really mean it. We're going to see these words today as we begin John chapter 14. And I think it helps us if we remember the context. Of course, Chapter 14 comes on the heels of chapter 13. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, 
sharing in what we call the Last Supper, the final Passover meal, as the shadow of the cross looms large. Jesus is only hours away from his suffering and crucifixion. And so Jesus is very troubled as he takes part in the Last Supper with his disciples. He's agitated. He's distraught. He knows what awaits him and how horrible it's going to be. But as we found out at the end of chapter 13, it's even worse than that. One of Jesus' own disciples is going to betray him and hand him over to the Jewish authorities who want his blood. Judas Iscariot has been revealed as as Jesus' betrayer, and he has left the room now to go and sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. So it's now, it's just Jesus and the 11 disciples. Jesus is very troubled. John has already told us that. But here's something interesting. Jesus, in his greatest moment of trouble and need, does not seek comfort from his disciples, not like you or I might do. Jesus actually offers comfort to his disciples. Look at chapter 14, verse 1 with me. Jesus' words here to the 11. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, that, we're going to stop here for just a moment and consider what Jesus is saying here. That Jesus, knowing what's about to happen, not just to himself, but also to these 11 men, Jesus is about to be betrayed, captured, put on trial, and crucified. And the disciples, in that sense, will be left behind, scattered about. The, the disciples are about to be totally disillusioned. The next few hours and days for them are going to be full of terror and misery. So much so that everything they've given their lives to these past three years is about to come unraveling at the seams. And so how is it that Jesus in this moment can say, don't let your hearts be troubled? If he knows what's about to happen, how troubling the circumstances are going to be, how can he say this? Well, he actually gives them the foundation for their comfort, for their hope. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And he says how they're going to overcome their troubles. He says, trust in God. Trust also in me. My version that we put on the screen says believe, but it's not just cognitive. It's not just in our heads. It's trust is what Jesus has in mind here. Trust in me. That is the antidote to the troubled heart. Now, y'all, that answer, honestly, seems so simple it couldn't be true. It seems almost like a cliche. Don't be troubled. Just trust in me. And I can say this for certain, as we kind of, let's just transfer this into our own lives. I don't have to guess that you've got plenty of things that trouble your heart, right where you sit. We all do. And the list might be different for each one of us, but we've all got stuff that bothers us, that just doesn't sit well with us. I'm sure we're all troubled by the state of our country in one way or another. We're troubled by the rise in gas prices or milk prices or or just prices in general, right? the, The future for our children is a troubling thought. We're troubled by the guilt of our own sins, perhaps. We could go on all day, troubles both great and small, that that sit heavy on our hearts. And if I, as your pastor, if I stand up here and say, listen, don't be troubled, just trust in Jesus. You might be tempted to say, well, thanks. That's all you got? I already trust in Jesus. I'm in church. I need tips. I need help. But really and truly, y'all, it's not a cliche to say this, that for every trouble of the human heart, the deepest, most foundational answer is just that. It's the answer Jesus gave us. 
to trust him. And, and, and see, when Jesus says, trust in me, we really need to, to have a deeper sense of what he means here. There is no casual surface level trust implied. What Jesus is telling us to do is to roll all of our weight onto him. Uh, in, in, uh, in 1 Peter, Peter says, cast all your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. Meaning God not only cares for you, but God can actually handle the weight of our anxieties and troubles, right? And so if we really consider who Jesus is, then we'll come to realize we really can trust him. And so, so think like this, y'all, at the deeper level, whatever it is that causes you or me trouble, even despair, we have, if you're a Christian, if you have faith in Christ, you have as your foundation the eternal God who created all things and who holds all things together by the word of his power. You're trusting in the God who performs justice and righteousness and redemption for everyone who loves him. The God who demonstrates his eternal love for us by giving his own son on our behalf so that all the riches of God's grace now belong to you by faith in Jesus. To say, trust in me, Jesus is saying, put everything in my basket as the eternal God who redeems you and promises you glory in his presence forever. Y'all, that's not a cliche to say, trust in Jesus. It's up to us to recognize the depth of all it means. And I trust and hope that God's Spirit would help us today, that there is no temporary, casual, surface-level hope provided here. This is the deepest hope there is. If we really think about the fact that Jesus is God, then he is the only source of actual comfort there is. Can we find it in ourselves or in any temporary and lesser thing? No, to trust in Jesus really is the answer. And of course, he has an endless supply of hope and comfort to give. He's like a well that never runs dry. You can trust him. You can trust him. And y'all, Jesus doesn't leave it there, which would be enough to say, trust in me. If we've come to know Jesus, then we know he's trustworthy. But on the heels of his call to trust him, Jesus connects that trust and hope with a promise. And y'all, this is a promise greater than we can conceive. This ought to thrill our hearts to hear it. Look at verse two. Jesus says to the disciples and to us, in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. In my Father's house, there are many rooms, meaning in heaven, God has made room for a great many people to live with him. And Jesus says, I go to prepare the place for you. Now, it's, it's kind of fun maybe to imagine Jesus up in heaven with a carpenter's belt on, you know, hammering away, making rooms for everybody. I don't think that's really how we're meant to picture this thing here. When Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, uh, my sense is he's probably referencing his cross and his resurrection. Jesus is saying here, through his sacrificial death and through his victorious resurrection, 
He is preparing a place for us. The preparing is his work to do on our behalf. And think about it, y'all. Otherwise, if Jesus doesn't prepare the way, the place, through his death and resurrection, we have no place in heaven. We have no hope because it's not something that we can earn or achieve. Only if Jesus makes the way for us, only if he prepares the place for us, are we able to enter in. And he has. Y'all, that's the source of the promise. The promise is not so much the place, but the person making the promise. Right? And, and we see that. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So this is, this is what we call the second coming. This is the promise of Jesus' return. One of the things we Christians have said for years and years, Christ has died, he's risen. Christ will come again. And this is his pledge. When he comes again, not if, but when he comes, he says, I will receive you to myself so that you may be with me. Where I am, you will be also. And y'all, that's why we don't, we don't give our focus entirely to the place. The place of heaven, that is, all the blessings and experiences that we'll enjoy in heaven, and there are many, too many to count. But heaven is only heaven because Jesus is there. It's not about the good things we receive and the family we're reunited with and all the wonderful gifts that we will receive, but it's being with Christ forever. That is the thing that gives us the most possible joy. That is the true glory of heaven. In Revelation, we're told that Jesus, we will no longer have the sun to illumine us because Jesus Christ will be the lamp that illumines all things. He's the glory beyond our imagination that makes heaven what it is. And so, y'all, I want want you to consider when the Apostle Paul defines our salvation, not just present, but also how he tethers it to the future. I want you to hear how Paul does it. This is Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, God might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We see it's it's present salvation but it's tethered to our future hope. In the ages to come, there's a promise. When Jesus says, I will come again to receive you to myself, he's not offering you and me a peaceful afterlife somewhere on a cloud. He's promising an infinite experience of glory. The riches of his grace in kindness toward us, stretching on forever. This is a kind of joy that never subsides or grows old or gets boring. And y'all, I know in our finite minds, we might wonder, okay, what am I going to do for eternity? How's that not going to get old? 
singing the same songs over and over. Like, how, how, how is that not going to become old and tired and boring after a while? And what the scripture assures us is that our joy in the glory of Jesus Christ will only increase on and on forever. It will never grow boring. And so, y'all, when we make the connection as to what Jesus says, Jesus promises that trusting him will ease the troubled heart and bring comfort in our despair. But when he promises that comfort, he points them, he points us to heaven. He points us to the future, not merely the present. I will come again and take you to the place I prepared for you. Now, I want to just sit in this for a moment because this is a real point of conviction for me. When my heart is troubled, I usually don't give a lot of thought to eternity. I am, I, I am very easily focused only on the here and now, tethered to this world and to what's happening to me here. And very seldom, y'all, do I pray for and long for the return of Christ. Now, that's not to say that we're only supposed to just sit and do nothing in hopes that Jesus will return, right? We, we, we live in this world with great meaning and purpose. We live by faith. We don't detach ourselves from the world because God is doing all manner of wonderful things right here and now in and through and around us. Yes, but I, I just, I find in myself this very easy temptation to overvalue this life and undervalue the life to come. And so the truth is there's this, this, there's this part of me Yes, I want Jesus to come back and fulfill this promise. Of course I do. But not until after I've been to Italy. And not until after I've watched my kids grow up. And all the things I want to achieve and experience that are on my bucket list. Only after all of my living that I've experienced to my liking, then Jesus can come back, right? And y'all, if you can relate to this at all, this should be a great challenge for us. To consider... Why do our hearts get troubled in the first place? Our hearts are troubled now because this world is in the bondage of corruption. That's what Romans 8 tells us. This world as it is has been subjected to futility in hope for a better future that God has planned and purposed. Right now in this life, nothing is as it ought to be, no matter how good it may feel. Nothing is as it ought to be. That's why we're troubled, is because we're not there yet. And so the only hope for this world, the only hope for you and me, is the revelation of Jesus Christ, his return. Only at his return will Jesus receive us to himself and make all things new. Only then will he create a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, where there are no troubles or tears, or heartache, and there is no more cancer. Only then will the heart truly be trouble-free, and we ought to long for that day. This is not an add-on to our faith, that I hope God will make all my circumstances nice, and then one day I'll go to heaven, and won't that be nice? This is central. When Jesus calls us to be comforted by trusting him, he points us to our future not merely the comfort of the present. 
Y'all, we have no hope otherwise. The Apostle Paul says, if we have hoped in Jesus Christ in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. When Peter speaks of this, and of course, remember, Peter was in the room, just like John was. When Peter speaks of this in 1 Peter 1, he makes it so crystal clear. And y'all, if you're troubled right now, you ought to live in 1 Peter chapter 1. It is glorious. Present salvation tethered to future hope. Listen to these words. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What a promise. An inheritance, a salvation, still yet future, but certain because our hope is in Christ. Y'all, there is no trouble great or small, in this life that can diminish a promise that great. Do not tether yourself to this world and diminish in your own heart and mind the hope and glory that awaits us. That's the only true hope we have. And y'all, this is why. Here's why. This hope is so certain and secure. Remember at the end of verse 4, Jesus said, and you know the way where I am going The disciples surely knew the way Jesus was going. He's told them. He's told them multiple times. But they don't. And that we're not any better than them. Don't look down on these guys, okay? I'm just as ignorant as these guys were. But look at verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. When Thomas asks Jesus to show us the way, Jesus responds in a totally unexpected fashion. He doesn't give them coordinates, he doesn't hand them instructions. I am the way, he says. I am the truth. I am the life. Now, we we, we should probably think of those not as three distinct things, but as three that, that are in concert together. Probably the truth and the life are supporting the fact that Jesus is the way here. So let's just give 30 seconds here to break these down. When Jesus says, I am the truth, what Jesus is saying here is not, I say true things although that's certainly right. But Jesus has told us all throughout the Gospel of John, his words are true because he only speaks what he hears the Father saying, which means all of Jesus' words are the very words of God. So Jesus doesn't just say true things. Jesus is the truth. He is the embodiment of truth as God's Son. Jesus also says, I am the life. Now, that's something he's already told Martha back in chapter 11, right before Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. He assures Lazarus' sister, I am the resurrection and the life. Everyone who believes in me will live even if he die. 
Well, Jesus says that again, I am the life. What does that mean? It means that because Jesus is God, that he is the embodiment of life. He's the giver of life. The very first thing John tells us in this gospel, way back in chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, capital W. The Word is Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being through him, meaning Jesus is the creator of all life. And then John says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so Jesus doesn't just impart life. He is the embodiment of life as God's divine son. He is the truth. He is the life. And because those things are true, he is most assuredly the way, the way to the Father. And y'all, this is, if we take the beginning of the sermon and kind of wrangle it back and bring it into play here, all religion, all philosophy, all of it communicates a way, right? A way for human beings to think and to live, a way for us to identify ourselves. All religions and philosophies have a body of knowledge. They've all got something that's been written down that declares what that religion or philosophy claims to be true and what we ought to believe and abide by. Every, every way of thinking and ideology prescribes a way of life, a way of morality, a way to happiness, maybe even life after death. And so what is it that Jesus says that makes him actually any different? It would seem maybe on the surface that Jesus is simply offering what every religion offers, just a different flavor. But y'all, here's the critical difference. Jesus, by his own self-identification, by his own declaration, Jesus is not a person merely saying to us, I found the way to God. I've discovered the truth about God. Believe it. I know the way God wants us to live. Obey it. See, if that were the case, then, then maybe Jesus would be just a different flavor of all the same thing. We we subscribe to what he says, we follow him, and if we chose correctly, if Jesus really is something special, if he really knows the way, then you and I can walk that way, and if we walk it well enough, we might just find our way to God. But no, that's not what the gospel says. The message of the gospel, the good news, is altogether different than this. Not, I know the way to God, follow me but I am God coming to find you. Jesus is not a person pointing us to God. He is God pointing us to himself. And that is the difference. You notice how, how he finishes this statement in, in verse 7, responding to Thomas. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Jesus says, to know me is to know the Father. To see me is to see God. We cannot lump Jesus together with all the rest of the religions and philosophies. It simply will not work. Because he's not a person pointing us to an idea of God. He is God pointing us to himself. And that's why Jesus can say, without apology or mistake, no one comes to the Father but through me. That is a glorious, exclusive statement. And it's meant to be exclusive. 
and, and y'all, people get tied up over this. John 14, 6 uh, can get you in trouble in a lot of circles. People don't like the exclusivity. A lot of Christians, honestly, get nervous about it because we have to wonder, well, why would God make salvation so narrow that it can only come through Jesus? What about every other path? What about every other belief system? Um, that, that's a whole sermon, perhaps. We're gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with it in about two minutes, though, okay? Uh, because it is an essential question in dealing with what Christ says. Why is Jesus the only way to God? You know, it's, it begins for us by recognizing what the Scripture says, and again, without apology or confusion. There is no path we can take to get to God. There is no amount of human religion or human effort that can make a person acceptable to God because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our sin alienates us from God because God is altogether holy and righteous and we are sinful and rebellious. Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3 make that case better than anything that's ever been written inside or outside the Bible. Read Romans 1 through 3. The case is simple and the case is clear. There is no way for human beings to make ourselves acceptable to God. Therefore, there is no path to walk. There is no ladder to climb. Even if there was one, we could never achieve it. And so sinful human beings have no hope within themselves. Our only hope is if God himself should intervene on our behalf. The only solution is not found within us. It's only found within him. God is the one who must act in favor of those who can't possibly save themselves. And y'all, as, as, as narrow as that feels, as bad as that news sounds, that is what opens up the wonderful, beautiful door to the grace that we celebrate. That God, in his grace, does not offer us a path to follow. He offers us a person to trust. Not a path, but a person. God sends into the world his very own son, Jesus Christ, the perfect embodiment of all divine truth, the giver of all life, made in human form for our sake, and so that now, in, in just in the greatest act of love and mercy that the world has ever known, God has made a way through his Son, a way for sinners to be forgiven, for the lost to be found, for the condemned to be set free, for the dead to be made alive, and it all comes through the death and resurrection of his Son. Our salvation comes through Jesus. And if it's hard to reconcile the narrowness of what we consider that to be, two quick things. One, God was not obligated to save anybody. The fact that God has offered the world salvation through his son is a grace beyond our categories. The fact that salvation is available at all is a miracle beyond our imagination. But then secondly, is there a more sufficient sacrifice God could have made that would allow an alternate path to him? Is there anything better God could have done for the sake of the world than to send his one and only son, the perfect lamb, slain for the forgiveness of those who could not save themselves? 
If God could do better, surely he would. He can do no better than his son. And that's why Jesus can say, I am the way. And everyone who trusts in me will be saved. Y'all, the truth is, if God is not obligated to save us, if we have not deserved his grace, and yet he has given us his son to take away the sin of the world, then the, 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 the fact that you and I are sitting in this room right now is 100% a gift. The fact that we look to Jesus and not to ourselves, y'all, that is grace in its purest form. That, that in our search of hope, in the face of despair, in our search of life in the place of death and darkness, we do not have to look in the mirror and wonder why we're not better than we are. We get to look to a cross, the fullest expression and demonstration of love God could give. That is a gift that we get to trust in him for this life, yes, and for the life to come. And it's also a gift for us to share his grace so that all may know him, that others may trust him and know him as we do. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. What a gift it is that you and I may come freely, freely to the Father through him. Let's pray. Father, I ask for, for us this morning that you would tie these threads together in our own hearts and minds. Hope and comfort for the troubled heart right where we sit is that we trust in Jesus Christ. And help us to see this morning, Father, all the depth and the, the riches of what it is to trust in Jesus. It's not just something we, it's not a box we check. We get to put all our weight on him. We get to cast every anxiety on him. The God of the universe who created us and loved us and laid himself down for us. Lord, let our trust be deep and deeply satisfying in all of our trouble. And Father, would you point us this morning beyond this present life and our present trouble? to the life to come. That, Father, we're not called to sit on our hands and just wait. Make us active, make us faithful, but do not let our hearts get tethered to this world and lose our sense of urgency and longing for the place you've prepared for us, Jesus. Let that be such an outrageous, joyful, wonderful, for us. And even in our minor troubles, even in just the, the, the normal everyday aches and pains of life, remind us, Lord, that there is coming a day when all things are made new and nothing will disrupt or derail the joy of your glory on and on forever. Nothing. That is the promise that sustains all our hope. And we have it in Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, for, for me, I pray for us, that this morning we would tether ourselves to you, 
to what you have done, what you are doing, and what you've promised to do, that every single thing about us, Lord, would look to Jesus as the way and the truth and the life, and that we would delight ourselves in him. Father, purge out of our hearts any sense of of our following another, another brand of religion, trying our best to obey and live by a good example. Lord, give us the real thing this morning. Let us see Jesus, our substitute, dying in our place, suffering for us so that we might be forgiven and reconciled. And so, Lord, in the, in, so that in the, in the ages to come, you, Father, would be glorified by showing off the riches of your grace and kindness toward us in Jesus. That's our hope. We don't subscribe to a better path. We trust a person, Jesus. Lord, let it be that our hearts will be filled with love for him in light of who he is, all he's done, and all he has promised in his awesome name. Amen.